Be seated. We are in a study of the Ten Commandments, and we continue our study with Exodus chapter 20. If you'd like to turn there, I'll be reading again through the whole law as given to Moses. There are many resources available for uh, the Christian to be able to apply these commandments in all of their uh, difficulties and the various situations of life. But I felt like um, the biggest uh, gap right now in such help is to say, what does this moral compass mean for the world and our place uh, in it now as Christians? We too, like those original slaves of Egypt, have been set free. And yet we have, in so many ways, the uh, mindset of slaves. We still believe the lies of Egypt. And so this study of the Ten Commandments especially is determined to expose the lies of our Egypt and to be able to redirect us to be able to think clearly and live to the glory of God. The first in this study was to remind ourselves of the preface that before the law is given, they call attention to the lawgiver. And the lie in question was, can we be good without God? We're in a big national experiment where we are trying to keep the morality of the Ten Commandments without the God who gave them, and it's not going very well. That is because the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men are tied together in the Scripture, as we saw. We need God. We saw in the first commandment the, uh, the uh, claim of the Lord to have our exclusive love and devotion. You shall have no other gods before me. But we asked the question, is Christianity intolerant? Well, perhaps by modern sensibilities it is, but not as we said historically understood. That what we need to understand is that tolerance itself has been redefined in the last generation and this is to our hurt. We considered, uh, you shall not make for yourself a graven image, and considered the question of Americanity, is the customer always right? We said that this consumer Christianity, this consumerism of our culture, has even made it into the church, and we need to beware of such a thought. We considered last week the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And I hoped to show you that if nothing is sacred, no one is safe. Well, we, can, we continue our study now with the fourth commandment. The, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but I'd like to read to you once again the Ten Commandments as the Lord has given them. So Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day 
is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come once again praying for that light from heaven to fall not only upon the page, but upon our very hearts and minds as well, that being so enlightened and being renewed uh, by this transforming word, being renewed in our minds, that we might be able to offer you the acceptable sacrifice of ourselves on your altar. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, as the founder of a public charity, one man wrote, I visit the large offices of wealthy donors, the crowded rooms of social servants agencies, and the small houses of the poorest families. Remarkably, there is a universal refrain. I am so busy. It doesn't seem to matter, he writes, if the people are doctors or daycare workers, students or therapists, community activists or cooks. Well, it's not just his imagination or observation. According to one report, our American work is up now 15% and our leisure time is down 30% just in the last 20 years. We are so busy. And the result is that we Americans especially feel this strange mixture of anxious activity and soul poverty. Now throughout world history, the regular remedy for this situation is found in rhythms of rest. God himself, when he finished his work of creation, we read, rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. That word rest, by the way, is the Hebrew word Shabbat, or Sabbath as we say it, an important rhythm and principle that God had instituted and blessed in the world from the beginning. Now, you might know that various Sabbath times are practiced by Buddhists and Muslims, Hindus and native tribes around the world, but not Americans increasingly. Uh, when Bill Gates was asked why he didn't believe in God, he replied, quote, just in terms of the allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. Well, it may not be very efficient, but it is very important, which is why it's even made the top 10. This practice of Sabbath rest began with our human race. It took on new form and meaning in the coming of Christ. It profoundly changed the whole of Western society 
when Constantine made it one of his early reforms, quote, on the venerable day of the sun, let magistrates and people residing in the cities rest and let all the workshops be clothed, closed. It survived the fall of the Roman Empire. It didn't darken in the Middle Ages. It didn't perish when exported to the New World. It was going strong when women got the vote. It prospered in the Depression. It blasted off at the dawn of the Space Age. But in these last few moments of history, in my lifetime, we've managed at last to let this day slip. This day of rest has slipped from our busy fingers. And can we live without it? Well, we're going to see. But the question, I think, is what kind of life will we have left? We know what it was like in Egypt. Now, what I found very interesting in doing some research this week is I didn't, didn't realize until I started, started looking at the publications and titles and doing some research. The, the result of this has been, in the last 20 years, an enormous flurry of books published. And I'd like to read you some of the titles and see if you can pick up any common theme. Here are some book titles of this huge number in this last 20 years. Reclaiming Rest, The Promise of Sabbath, Solitude, and Stillness in a Restless World. Sabbath, Finding Rest, Renewal, and Delight in Our Busy Lives. Subversive Sabbath, The Surprising Power of Rest in a Non-Stop World. Sabbath as Resistance, Saying No to the Culture of Now. Rest now, seven ways to say no, set boundaries, and seize joy. Soul rest, reclaim your life, return to Sabbath. 24 slash 6, a prescription for a healthier, happier life. And finally, an unhurried life following Jesus' rhythms of work and rest. Did you see any common theme in those titles, which I've selected among a great many, by the way. There are many, many more where that came from. Did you, did you hear? A restless world, busy lives, nonstop world, the culture of now. Um, people have realized already we have lost something very important to our physical health, our mental health, our psychological health, our emotional health, and especially our spiritual health. And I found it very interesting that some of these books are not written to Christians. They are written to people who somehow benefited in the past from various Christian-influenced laws, but now find themselves without a break, without help, without peace. None of the books, by the way, I've listed are from a Presbyterian or Reformed perspective. I mean, 20 years ago, if you wanted to pick up a book on the Lord's Day or keeping the Sabbath, it'll probably be Reformed or Presbyterian title. None of these books are. They're all from other perspectives now. What's very interesting to me is that also these books got also 
nearly five stars on Amazon, and people have these comments, this book saved my life, this book changed my life. And I read several of the intros, and I realized that the power was not in the author's pen. The power was in the practice. Well, let me say right up front, if some of you already have objections rising in your minds, that the only one who ever practiced this day of rest perfectly was Jesus. And he got in a lot of trouble for doing so. Jesus rejected the Pharisees' Sabbath outright, and we need to do the same. They had totally failed to grasp why the Sabbath was made for man, why it was to be a delight. The Sabbath, as God made it, was much more than the absence of work, though that's mentioned. But as we read on, we find that it's the presence of something that we receive from a concentrated period of time when we devote ourselves to what is the most deeply wonderful and beautiful and nourishing and true, and especially when we do so with loved ones as well. It's a time that we heal from the wounds we are receiving from the world. It is a time when we find freedom in rhythms of rest. I'm going to consider this commandment with you once again, as I have in the past. I'd like to do a brief exposition of the commandment itself, but then once again consider how this challenges the prevailing lies of our world around us. As we consider this fourth commandment, let's consider simply what, how, and why. As we follow here, we are told what to do in verse 8. We are told how to do it in verses 9 and 10, and we are told why in verse 11. And so it'll be a very simple outline, what, how, and why. First, we are told what to do in verse 8. We are told to have a holy day. Remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. The Sabbath is one of our most tangible ways to experience God's grace in our life when we remember it, when we keep it holy, when we participate in what nourishes our souls in worship and relationship, mercy and good works, rest and refreshment, peace and thankfulness. Um, Interestingly, the only thing that God declared holy at the beginning in creation was the Sabbath. I mean, the earth, the stars, the animals, even people are not designated as holy. Now, the mythical mind might have expected that uh, God would at the beginning, make a holy mountain or a holy river, and there a sanctuary would be established. But no, God set apart holiness in time, not space. And so we don't have a pilgrimage to Mecca, but we do have an oasis each week of time that is holy. One of the most basic things we learn in the Bible is God's desire for us to experience rest. It's woven throughout God's story. It was man's experience, his very first day in creation. Man was created the sixth, and God rested the seventh day. He put aside all of his work, and he had a whole day of communion with man. We read of it in God's covenant with Noah, the exodus from Egypt, the promised land, the exile from the land when it wasn't kept well, 
the promise of the Lord of the Sabbath, our Lord Jesus, and the eternal rest that awaits us. Come to me, the Lord says, and I will give you rest. And this theme is carried throughout the Bible. And so we often find Jesus, for example, on the Sabbath day at the synagogue, and he's at homes of other people. He's enjoying a meal and conversation. And we see him using the day to minister to other people. More about that in a minute. But simply to say that we also find something different from the day of resurrection onward. That Jesus meets with his, disciple, his disciples each week on Sunday, on the first day of the week, when it says they worship him. It is the day that the early church gathers together, for instance, in the upper room in the book of Acts. It is the day that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. It's the day that collections for the needy must be made. And so we read in Revelation 1 of the Lord's Day, a day that remains for the Christian, a day of kindness and mercy, compassion and holiness. What to do? Keep a day holy. Now we have, secondly, how to do it. We have some further directions on work and rest and blessing. Our God is a God who works. Our God is the God of rest. Our God is the God that has blessed a day to us, And we find some directions here about how we are to do the same. This fourth commandment sits in an interesting place in the ten. It sits right below our duties to God and right above our duties to our neighbor. Now, usually and rightly, it's uh, classed or grouped together with our duty toward God. I have no objection whatsoever. But simply to note that in the commandment itself... There is this bridge, did you notice? As we are taught that we are not only to observe the day ourselves, but to make it a day of blessing to others. That it is also a way that we are to love our neighbor. We are to keep the day holy, to be like our Father in heaven. That is the emphasis, that it should be part of our love toward him. But we're also commanded to give others rest, that they also may worship the God who rests. By including children, the fourth commandment teaches us that heads of households are the ones who need to take the lead in this matter. Younger ones not always seeing things clearly, of course. And by including servants, we are taught that employers have a responsibility for their workers. In fact, some writers have described this fourth commandment as the world's first worker's Bill of Rights. Think about that. It was a very, very different culture in Israel. In the ancient world, there was a difference between masters and servants. The difference was this. Masters got the leisure, servants got the work in general, right? This commandment gives a new social order where work isn't for the servant and leisure for the master. Everyone should work for six and everyone should rest on the seventh. And those in authority need to use that authority in the service of blessing to those under their care. This means also that battling busyness is a community effort. Even the stranger within the gates is likewise to be blessed. But what specifically is a holy day? What makes it a blessed day? Once again, I point out that there's only been one person in history who's ever kept this holy day 
perfectly, and that is our Lord Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. And look at Christ's behavior. What did he do on Sunday? Well, he worshipped, we said. He enjoyed the fellowship of others. By the way, both believers and unbelievers. For instance, we find him not infrequently on the Sabbath in the house of a Pharisee. We see him in homes, enjoying a meal and spiritual conversation, also often speaking the good news. He walked and talked with his disciples. Much more could be said, but most significantly, most notably in the Bible, we find him using the day to do good, to show mercy, and to heal. And Jesus explicitly says, this is not just for him, that this is the design of the day, to do good, he says, to heal, to save life. This is a blessed day. The Lord looked at those who forgot this blessedness, we read, with anger. He looked at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts. This is a day, he says, that was made for man, a day for you to show mercy. And he says, look, if you would even lift a sheep out of the pit on the Sabbath, how much more should you show mercy to a man? It's not just a day to stop work. Just as our Father has made a day a blessing for us, we are to make it a blessing to others as we are able. So we read earlier in Isaiah about God's instructions of a holy day. A holy day that would apply equally well, I suppose, to a day of fasting or a Sabbath. But at the end of that, he says, call it a delight. It's created to be a delight. It's created not to be a burden, but a blessing. Not just important or useful, but delightful. It makes us godlier, happier, healthier, more fruitful in hospitality, in worship, in love, and in good works. And God knows we don't have enough of that in the world. We are losing our advance of the kingdom of God in part because we are simply losing our time to do it. The practice of the Sabbath, summarized here, giving rest, making it a blessing, but as we read on, filling it positively with all those blessed things that our Lord illustrates himself. Finally, we're told in the commandment why to do it. We have a working, resting, and blessing God. There are many practical reasons for keeping a day holy, those that I'll mention again in a few minutes as we are losing our grip on it in America. But it promotes the corporate worship of God. It restores us physically and spiritually. However, the fundamental reason given here that we might be imitators of God as dear children. For our Father in six days made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Our Father rested on the seventh day. We want to be like our Father. And that is ultimately the bottom line. The Lord gave us his laws because he loves us and wants us to find true fulfillment of life, to live well and to live fully. To live our lives to work uh, for six days as he himself has, and that we might rest for the seventh as he did. No one knows better than he does how a human life works best as he has made us. Well, um, sometimes I am asked, do we still have to remember the Sabbath day now as Christians? I preached a whole sermon on this some time ago, and I 
won't repeat my seven arguments. There's plenty of good books and works on that, and I'm happy to give you my work or the work of others. Uh, I can appreciate the question. But frankly, I, I feel like the problem is that all people know when they think about the Sabbath is the wicked, miserable interpretation that the Pharisees gave. And they say, when we still, do we still have to? I think that the question is strange. When we understand God's intention for the day, have any of the things I've mentioned today sound like things that we have to do? Or do they sound like things we want to do? Or things we get to do? Somebody maybe asks, hey, do we still have to keep on going on dates now that we're married? Well, the question itself shows that there is some problem. No? And again, the problem in America is not that we used to have good Sabbath keeping until the 1960s and everything fell apart. The, the truth is, there was a lot of miserable Sabbath keeping in this country. We lost the spirit of the law, uh, generally speaking, a long time ago. And what we need to do is not just recover the law or recover the day, but recover the intention that God himself has given to be something not just useful or legal, but delightful, godly, holy, so the question, do we still have to, does belie in, in my mind some problem in understanding what's being spoken of, or at least in a life's priorities? The same thing, uh, somebody will say to me, well, just tell me what I can't do. I, I understand that question. And it's a fair question. And even in the commandment, the Lord says, you, should, you shall not do any work. There is a No. But it is kind of like saying, to use my analogy, just tell me what I can't do on a date. What you can't do? I mean, are you saying I can't take work calls or go into the office for a bit on a date? Well, I'm sure your spouse would certainly understand if you had to, if there was some necessity. But the question indicates still that there's something about a date that may be eluding you, something about delighting in another in the time spent in another's presence, something about cultivating a relationship, something about making this a priority in lives together. I mean, I suppose if your parents never went on a date or were always happier apart, the question makes sense. Oh, can't I do this? Can't I do that? I, I understand if that's what you had growing up. And similarly, I suppose if Sundays were miserable for you or all you experience with what Laura Ingalls experienced, right, uh, and her husband, Almanzo, growing up. If you were always happier when it was over, there's something understandable to that question, but in the Bible, in the life of Jesus especially, we see a very different picture, do we not? A picture, a, a picture that is thoroughly refreshing, life-giving, a, a picture that is following what our Lord himself did when he, from the very first, put aside his work of creation, spent time with man in fellowship, made it a blessing, sanctified the day, this is a picture of how we are to, therefore, live as well. Our God is a resting God, and so must we. Well, enough for the exposition for today. Um, let's think for a few minutes 
about how this collides with our culture. We, we live in an American culture that tends toward anxiety, ambition, distraction, burnout, a tired system of life that is unhealthy for our souls, our bodies, our relationships, our church, our society as a whole. There's a book called Rhythms of Rest, Finding Sabbath in a Busy World. And in the foreword, it says, quote, Most of us who practice the Sabbath came to it slantwise and stumbling. It wasn't some mountaintop epiphany that brought us to the place. It was hopelessness, raggedness, lostness. We were at our wit's end. All our doing had turned into undoing. And then somehow, by some miracle of grace, we heard a voice, Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It wasn't some theological conviction, of course, was what he's trying to say. It was, first of all, a simple recognition of what is happening to my life and my family and my spirituality and everything else. There is something that I need that I do not know what it is. And then hearing of rest, then learning of Shabbat, there is blessedness. It was after the French Revolution in 1793 that France de-Christianized their calendar in an attempt to move along progressively and to increase national productivity. So they decided they would have a 10-day week, nine days on, one day off. The experiment radically failed. Productivity decreased, and people burned out. Suicide went up, but that may have been a result of the post-French Revolution just as well, so I can't say much about that. But it is, it is what happened. It turns out that they learned humans simply were not made to work nine days and rest for one. Um, you think, okay, French Revolution, let's not generalize. Okay. Another experiment took place in England during the Second World War because of the urgent need for ammunition, for the defense of their lives and country. They asked the workers in the ammunition plant to work seven days straight. We need this. To their utter astonishment, productivity went down. And they had to return to giving people a day of rest in order to reclaim their prior productivity. As somebody said, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. Um, in Skylab. Remember Skylab? Remember it fell from the sky? Well, some of you guys remember that? Okay, Skylab. It was the predecessor to the International Space Station. Uh, they, they went on an 84-day mission. This was the early days of having something like that up there. They scheduled every day, right, full. <sighs> Halfway through, Colonel William Pogue requested a day of rest for mission control for his exhausted crew. Uh, they, they just could not go on as they had go on anymore. Even their breathtaking view, the excitement and the urgency of their mission, they found could not relieve them from their day of rest. Mission control denied it. And in the first of its kind, our American space crew went on strike in space. They disobey orders. They took a Sabbath day. 
And to this day, NASA now schedules time for rest on all space travel. Um, one more interesting thing. Um, you, you probably read something about the uh, struggle in Germany in the last couple of years. Germany, historically Christian country, never got rid of their laws about trading or going to stores on, 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 on Sunday. And uh, so there was this attempt a couple Christmases ago uh, for, for some of the stores just in Berlin, just the ones downtown, to open up on Sunday. Uh, and only for four weeks, they said. And uh, it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Germany, and they said no. Why? Because Germany is a thoroughly Christian country, because it is so Christian observant? No. They did recognize that Christianity was at the root of those laws, and right in their constitution, as a matter of fact. But they said that the foundation of our society, uh, we, we need this. We, we need this rest. And so the most productive nation in all of Europe said, we can't get rid of this day. One of our former presidents said, as we keep or break the Sabbath day, we nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope by which man rises. And so I put it to you, don't believe the culture of our busy, distracted, exhausted world. That we need this truth more than ever in our anxiety-riven, achievement-oriented, busy, distracted age. It has benefits not just for the church and the spiritual health and the family health, but for physical and emotional health. We need much more delight in our lives, don't we? I could go and quote statistics, I could cite doctors. Do I need to do that? We need, we need what the Lord tells us that we need. What he himself created and sanctified before a fall happened, before there was any ceremonial law or anything like that. He says, I want you to have a day of delight. A day of stronger bonds with family and friends and fellow Christians and supremely with a life-giving relationship with your God. You need it. You need to worship and witness. You need a day to do good and to heal and to be a blessing to others. And you need to be like me. A couple years ago, Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called Crazy Busy, a mercifully short book about a really big problem. He wrote, busyness kills more Christians than bullets. We are so busy with a million pursuits that we don't even notice the most important things slipping away. Just remember, he says, the most serious threats are spiritual. When we are crazy busy, we put our souls at risk. The antidote to busyness is not sloth and indifference. The antidote is rest, rhythm. Death to pride, acceptance of our own finitude, trust in the providence of God. The challenge is not merely to make a few bad habits go away. The challenge is not to let our spiritual lives slip away. We won't say no to more craziness until we can say yes to more Jesus. And so I'd like to conclude with a few quotes. Some of them are celebrity endorsements. Some of them are cautionary tales. 
But I'd like you to think through some testimonies down through the ages about the importance of these things. First, the Epistle of Barnabas, written about 100 A.D. Um, For this reason, we keep the eighth day with joy, the day on which Jesus also rose from the dead, keeping it with joy. With delight is the biblical word. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, around 168. The enlightened Christian, when he has fully observed the day, which is the Lord's day, according to the gospel, keeps, that, keeps the day when he casts away low worldly thought and lays hold of that which is spiritual and enlightened, glorying in the resurrection of the Lord. Third century origin. Uh, by the way, this is sometimes called the, Christ, the Lord's Day, sometimes called the Christian Sabbath. That's Origen's language. He's the one who coined that term uh, in the third century. He wrote, leaving the Jewish observance of the Sabbath, let us see how the Sabbath ought to be observed by a Christian. On the Sabbath day, all worldly labors ought to be abstained from. And if, therefore, you cease from all secular works and execute nothing worldly, but give yourselves up to spiritual exercises, repairing to the church, attending sacred reading and instruction, thinking of celestial things, solicitous for the future, not looking to things present and visible, but to things which are future and invisible. This is the observance of the Christian Sabbath. Here's the 5th century the emperor Leo I. We ordain according to the true meaning of the Holy Ghost and of the apostles thereby directed that on the sacred day wherein our integrity was restored that we do rest and cease from labor and neither husbandmen nor others that day would put their hand to work for if the Jews did so much to reverence their Sabbaths which were but a shadow of ours and not which we inhabit the light and the truth of grace, bound to honor that day which the Lord himself honored and has therein delivered us from the dishonor of death. Are we not bound to keep it singular and inviolable, well well contenting ourselves with so liberal a grant of rest and not encroaching upon the one day which God has chosen to honor? Is it... Again, this is again, still, still Leo I, um, emperor of, of Rome. Is it not reckless neglect of religion to make that very day common and to think we may do with it as the rest? Well, I could supply, I could supply other ancient testimonies. Let's go to some more recent ones. Here's the testimony of Voltaire, French atheist. 18th century. If you want to kill Christianity, you must abolish Sunday. (laughs) John McLean, early 19th century. He's a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Where there is no Christian Sabbath, there is no Christian morality. William Wilberforce, early 19th century. The member of British Parliament, man who almost single-handedly brought an end to the slave trade. A very busy man. Quote, there is nothing in which I would recommend to you more strictly to be resolute in than keeping the Sabbath holy. I can truly declare that to me, 
the institution of the Sabbath has been invaluable. One more from Benjamin Harrison, 23rd President of the United States, turn of the 20th century. Experience and observation convince me that all who work with the hand or brain require the rest, which a general observance of the Sabbath can only secure. The philanthropist and the Christian may approach the subject from different directions, but whether we regard man as animal or immortal, we should unite in securing for him the rest of that body and spirit both that both demand for their best condition and highest good. Those who don't find the divine command in the book can't fail to find it in the man. I hope I've challenged you in some ways to think that the, the new lie of our culture, that we can do as we please and we'll be even more happy, more delighted, more productive, will never get us very far. Indeed, will set us back. The kingdom of grace should hit a high watermark every Sunday. God has given Christians a love for one another that makes it a delight to gather, to praise, to fill our time with fellowship, with hospitality, with ministry, with uh, uh, speaking the good news. He's given us a, a great purpose that can be fulfilled every day, but is intended to be supremely fulfilled on a day that we count as holy and good, where God himself has led the way. No work of necessity forbidden, all works of goodness and mercy promoted. And I would ask you to worry less about what you can't do and consider more about what you get to do. Do this and you will find the Sabbath a delight. And if it can be considered a yoke, then, beloved, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come once again that we might find rest for our souls, supremely the rest that yet awaits, that fulfillment of the Sabbath that we long for when we should rest from our labors Our Father, we consider again those blessings of heaven when all the occupations of this day should fill our every day. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's uh, stand together, please, and we'll sing from the blue book, Psalm 92. Psalm 92.